morning, everybody. Can you hear me? Okay. Good morning. It's good to be with you. Um, as Robbie said, my name is Tucker, and uh, it's a privilege to just be asked to, to be with you this morning and to share from God's Word. Um, and I, I wanted to, to just... Uh, give a greeting and ask for prayers. Uh, my family comes from City Line Church. Uh, we meet in Balakinwood. We're a PCA church there, and we're in the midst of a, a pastor search. So, so if you think of it, please pray for us as we look for our next pastor. Um, it's, a, it's a trying season to do that. And so, um, again, really appreciate the privilege of being here as I kind of go back and forth between City Line and here to preach God's word. So let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll dig in. Heavenly Father, thank you, God, for this good day. Thank you for, Lord, just uh, uh, the privilege of my family being here and being able to see uh, new members brought in to Ironworks and the baptism of these two little ones, Lord. Thank you, God, for this church body that is doing Christianity Explored and uh, ministering to the community in such a great way. Lord God, we pray that you would be exalted every, every day. We pray that this morning, Lord, you would equip our hearts, that, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, you would um, move in us, that we would leave here with a deeper faith, a deeper love for Jesus, a deeper um, thankfulness, Lord, for your plan of redemption. Um, thank you for this season of Lent. Thank you for uh, the, the preparation of our hearts for Easter Sunday. Lord, we love you, and we entrust this time to you. May the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts, be pleasing in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let me set the scene for you. You can close your eyes if you'd like. But I want you to go here with me. On a remote, uninhabited Greek island... A group of soldiers stand around waiting. The Ark of the Covenant of the Hebrew God is in their midst. Men of power and men of lower estate are waiting to see what this God of the Hebrews will do. The lid of the Ark is carefully removed, and angels begin floating through the air, and it's beautiful to behold. But then something changes. The angelic host turns horrible, terrifying. The angels begin tearing through the armed soldiers, impervious to any human weapon, and melts to wax all who stand in the angel's way. Where do we find that narrative in Scripture? We don't. Some of you know this. It's from the 1981 film Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's from this climactic scene in the movie, and it's maybe, when we think of the Ark of the Covenant, it's where we go. Sadly, it's where I oftentimes have gone. Thinking of the Ark as some sort of magical talisman that will defeat the bad guys and turn the tide of the war. So let's read our passage today from 1 Samuel 5, verses 1 through 7. You have it in your bulletin. I'm going to be reading from the ESV. And this is what the word of the Lord says. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. 
And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So... This juxtaposition between how I oftentimes have thought of the Ark of the Covenant since I was a little kid watching Raiders of the Lost Ark to how scripture reveals what the Ark is and and what's happening when it's present. In scripture, the Ark is a symbol of God's presence. It's not a nuclear weapon. It's not a bucket full of angels. It's a sign signifying something else. The God of Abraham and Isaac the God of all creation, King of kings, ruler of rulers, the beginning and the end is present. Everything else compares. It doesn't compare to his power, his might, his glory. And so we just think about this. The ark is not God. It's a symbol of his presence and power. And um, as I understand it, you all have been going through 1 Samuel 5, for uh, Samuel, and you've seen the Israelites ongoing battles with the Philistines, the people opposed to God's chosen people. You've seen the importance of good leadership and the horror of bad leadership, particularly in the judges and later on in Phinehas and Hophni, the sons of Eli. And this is during a particularly horrible time for the people of Israel during the time of the judges. In chapter 4, we see the Israelites' superstitious belief, not too much different from what we see in Raiders of the Lost Ark, that if we just bring the Ark into battle, we'll win. We'll treat it as some sort of lucky rabbit's foot. And for them, it doesn't go well. They lose the battle, and the Ark is captured. The Philistines have captured it and taken it to Ashdod. So it seems like... The God of Israel is really just that, a territorial, regional God who is subdued. Yeah, he's represented in the way any other idol would be, like this fish God, Dagon. Dag means corn, and so maybe some sort of a crop deity for the Philistines. And then you have that compared with the ark and the Israelites' belief that, yeah, it's just God in Wood box covered with gold. And the Philistines think that this God has been subdued. But when they place the ark in the temple of their fish god, Dagon, things start to get a little bit strange. 
First of all, in the dark of the night, this fish god Dagon, and by the way, when I call this fish god Dagon, small g god and fish god, the, the, the best idea we have of what this idol looks like is the top half is a man, the bottom half is a mermaid, like a fishtail, so like a merman, is that what we call that? So this fish god Dagon falls off his pedestal before the ark. The next morning, the keepers of the temple come in and by their own power, they lift up with their hands and we catch the irony here, they lift up the fish god and put him, put him back on the pedestal. Why do they have to do that by their own power? Well, because the fish god has no power. It's a mere idol. Then after another dark night in the temple, the idol not only falls again before the Ark of the Covenant, but its head and its hands break off and the hits keep coming for the Philistines. The hand of the Lord, we read, was heavy against the people of Ashdod, the Philistine city where the Ark was. We read, he, God, terrified and afflicted them with tumors. Now, we're not really sure what this affliction was, what these tumors were, where they came from, but this is something that I found incredible. From Jerome's Latin Vulgate, he deliciously rendered verse 6 this way, God smote them in the more secret parts of their posteriors. True story. Jerome wrote that, and we would say, how do you translate that in the modern vernacular? God kicked them in the behind. He did. So the people of Ashdod are so freaked out that the mayor sends the ark to a neighboring city, Philistine city, to Ekron. And the folks from Ekron experience the same thing. So they send the ark or try to send the ark to Gath. And the people of Gath, they've heard what's happened in their sister cities and they want none of it. Where the ark goes, pestilence and death follows. God comes in judgment. God comes and displays his power, his sovereignty, and here's the thing. He does that without Israel's help. They were like, we got to help God come into battle with us so he'll maybe do his work and, and we'll win. We'll beat the Philistines and it doesn't go well for them. But God doesn't need them to show his power. God is present here with the Philistines. God doesn't need the Israelites to help him. And he can't be played by them and be treated as a sort of a genie in a bottle. But oh, how the Israelites need him. So just two brief points this morning. First, this story that we read in 1 Samuel 5, verses 1 through 7, it encapsulates the story of the Bible, all of Scripture. Secondly, this story encapsulates the story of our salvation, very personal for us. So first, this is what the Bible is about, this story. From the Garden of Eden onwards, it's about this story. It's about warfare. It's about hostility. It's about the forces of darkness arrayed against the forces of light. It's about the God of creation versus the idols of this world. That's what happened in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve, they thought they knew better than God. They believed the lie of the serpent, and they set up an idol themselves dethroning God and saying, we're going to be the arbiters of what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's evil, thinking they knew better than God. And they believed a lie. From the Garden of Eden onwards, we see the same story again and again. It's always a story of humanity trying to assert autonomy, 
dethroning God. And whether it's, it's God versus the, the lying serpent, or it's God versus Pharaoh and the Egyptians, or it's God versus empire, Rome and Caesar, or God versus the world, the flesh, and the devil. It's an ongoing, sordid tale of human autonomy. And whether it's an idol made of wood or iron, it's a calf or it's a fish, an idol of our hearts or our minds, an idol of the ancients or an idol of today, it's the same question that we're confronted with throughout Scripture. Who is God? Who is your God? Who will you believe? Who will you follow? It's either Baal or God. It's either Baal or Nebo or Molech or self or money or the God who is there. Continually throughout scripture, God reminds his people, calls his people, calls everyone that there is no God besides him. We can see it in just in one place, Isaiah 44, 6. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. We see it in the nation states around Israel building their idols the way that the, the Philistines built Dagon. We see it among the Babylonians. And we see it even among the people of Israel who fashion gods for themselves. We saw it at Mount Horeb when they built the golden calf to worship. But here's where we remember, God isn't contained in the ark any more than he is in a golden calf or a creature of nature. In 1 Samuel 5 verse 4, we read that the hands of Dagon are cut off. Now we juxtapose that, contrast that with verse 6. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. If we continue reading in uh, verse 11, God's hand was very heavy. That word heavy, it's this word that can either mean weighty or it can mean glory. God throws his weight around. He throws his glory around. He roughs up Dagon permanently. And that's what verse five is getting at. It affects the way the people in the area even view the temple of Dagon. That's power. Unlike Dagon, God's hands won't be cut off, break off, for he's not made of iron or wood. He's not merely the ark, or as Indiana Jones-ishly, it's thought, he's in the ark. He's the God of heaven and earth, not some regional tribal deity. Now, that was then, that was a long time ago. What about us? Well, we, as post-enlightenment rational thinkers, we don't worship things made of iron or wood, maybe. But what do we put our time, energy, and resources into? What do we look to? The Irish writer Paul Kingsnorth, he suggests that maybe the idol we look to is that thing, that obelisk, in our pockets, a smartphone. Look at it to make sense of the world. And I don't mean to just pick on iPhones, Android. Or something else less tangible, like an ideology or our work or our reputation. We can make an idol out of anything. And many of you have heard this before. Um, John Calvin wrote in book one, chapter 11 of his Institutes that 
man's heart is an idol factory. We'll make an idol out of anything to find satisfaction, divine joy, peace, to fulfill us. The living God today, not just back in 1 Samuel 5 in the time of the judges, the God of all creation is still staring down idols today. And the question is still for us. Who will you serve? Power, money, politics, knowledge, or the living God? The story of Dagon versus God, it's an age-old story. God versus idols, the gods of this world, the philosophies of this world, the idols of men's hearts versus the God of all creation. And as we read scripture, this question confronts us again and again. I've said it before, who rules our hearts? Who reigns? Who has ultimate power, strength, authority in our lives? The God, small g God of this world that we put our hope in, or the God who holds your life and mine in his wise, compassionate, gracious, powerful hands. That's what this story and what the whole of scripture is about. Second thing, the story of Dagon versus God is what our own stories are about. It's about our salvation. As the living God peers into our hearts this morning, what, is, what does he find there? And, and Robbie said this, like we come here and we've got all sorts of things going on in our hearts. We're thinking about what's for dinner after church. We're thinking about work we have to do for tomorrow. We're thinking about um, relationship issues that we've had from yesterday. And we think about the NCAA basketball tournament and we come here. And what does God see when he peers into our hearts? What does he find there? Whatever occupies our hearts other than Jesus becomes, can become a functional idol, a Dagon. So the battle yet wages. And here's something interesting about our passage today. The Ashdodites, when the, the, the idol has fallen down before the ark, they come in and they set it up. And they presumably do that the next night too, when it's fallen again. And in spite of this, decades, centuries Later, the world is still propping up idols. And no matter how much we can know and point out the futility of propping up these idols, they never work, they never satisfy. Men and women still bow down and worship these false gods. The gods of human reason and pleasure and sex and the gods of fame and power and their broken vessels, every one of them. They can never satisfy, never usurp the power of the living God who rules and reigns. And here's the good news, though. God has lost none of his ancient power. His power now is the same as it was in the time of the judges. How does he deal with our Dagons? Well, this story that we read in in 1 Samuel 5, it's true, right? It's historical. This is a historical narrative. It's the history of Israel. It's a true story. But the Old Testament is full of types and allegories. And I think this is one of them. It gives us our story in a sense. All of us have lived under the the ruler of this age and followed the powers of this world and set up idols in our hearts. But God then does something in us, in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives. So we see in, in our story here today in 1 Samuel 5, the incoming of the ark. Well, that's a sort of an allegory of the ark being introduced into the human heart. God's grace, his power, the gospel, God's word coming to us 
And what is found there in our own hearts? But our, typically our ruling passions, our sin. And what does God in his power do? Well, he vanquishes the idols of our hearts, banishing the prince of the power of the air. God takes up residence within us, within us individually. You're born again as a follower of Jesus. And collectively, God is present with us by his spirit. And your heart, my heart, they become sensitive to the things of God. We, we long to please him. We desire to do his will. But those idols, they get set up again. Who will prevail? Who will prevail? The battle wages, but we remember the good news of Jesus Christ. Even though the battle yet wages, Christ has already won the war. So we remember that God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work in Christ Jesus. And what God has started in you, Philippians 1, 6, he will bring to completion at the day of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Dagon may be set up again and again, but God, when he comes, Idols are destroyed, banished, they crumble. And so we think of it this way. With the gospel coming into our lives, the penalty of sin is destroyed. There's no more penalty. God, by his power and the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the penalty of sin is destroyed for us here and now. And we can also go on to say that even in our sanctification, the power of the enemy has been subdued. We're no longer, as followers of Jesus, enslaved to sin. God is more powerful even than those idols that we prop up sometimes. And ultimately, we wait for the very presence of idolatry and sin to be gone forever. There's this great passage in Hebrews 10, 14. Um, God has perfected for all time those who are being made perfect. The already and the not yet. Our status is secure, sons and daughters of the living God by the work of Jesus Christ. And we're waiting for that day. God is continuing to perfect us. We're waiting for that day when God, by his power, banishes sin, death, hell, idolatry forever. So what do we do, though, friends, when, man, I'm not feeling it. I'm not real sure. Idols seem to rule in this world and even sometimes in my heart. What do we do? Well, we wait for God to make those idols crumble and we wait with confidence. There's this rather random episode in um, Second Chronicles and the king of Judah has... Every known enemy, it seems, uh, coming against Israel at En Gedi. And the king, Jehoshaphat, prayed, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. If disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. Oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on our enemies? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do. 
but our eyes are on you. We can feel helpless and weak. I'm still afflicted by the same junk that I was when I was 25 years old. God, how long is this going to last? I don't know what to do, but I'm going to wait for you. I'm going to look for you. In that climactic scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, Indiana Jones says to his co-belligerent, Marion, close your eyes, Marion, as the angels are flying around. They're terrifying. And he says, close your eyes. Close your eyes. That's actually pretty good theology for an 80s movie. For our God is a consuming fire, Deuteronomy 4, Isaiah 30, Hebrews 12. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the Lord. But here's for us today. Do we close our eyes and say, this is really scary? No, we look to Jesus. We look to Jesus. We're going to celebrate this next week, riding on a donkey into Jerusalem. And we're crying out, Hosanna, save us now. Help, Lord, deliver us. We don't close our eyes and we don't even fear. Psalm 91, I will not be afraid anymore of the terrors by night, nor the arrows that fly by day. Though a thousand should fall at my side, though ten thousands should fall, in God I'll put all my trust. Because you, God, are my protector. You will care for me. You'll provide for me. You're a refuge for me. You will be with me. I am counted as your beloved So friends, I just want to leave you with this from Isaiah 41, verse 10. This is the hope that we have in God, counted as his people in union with Christ, beloved by him. God says to us this morning, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. God will always reveal himself in power. He did it unmistakably to the Philistines. He did it with the Egyptians in the Exodus. He did it with Christ in the empty tomb. And he does it today in countless stories of transformed lives, people saved by God's grace and power. Dagon has fallen, our God reigns. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word that gives us hope, a confidence, Lord God, even when we feel weak and helpless, Lord God, you are mighty, you reign and you rule. So Lord, for my friends here, brothers and sisters in Christ, Lord, would we, God, know and experience your loving kindness towards us, your tenderness towards us, your power, your might, your grace, your wisdom your benevolence, your mercy. Lord God, we love you and we trust you and we look to you, Lord God. We thank you for all that you have done for us and we look forward to what you're continuing to do in us by your grace in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I pray in his name, amen.